Mark chapter 11, and if you're new with us, I'm so glad you're here today. My name's Cody, I'm the senior pastor, and uh, God's Word is the centerpiece of our worship services, and so I want to encourage you to have a Bible open to this whole teaching time, and I'd even encourage you to take a few notes. So there's a note page in front of you there as well, you can use that or whatever scrap paper you've got, and uh, so your Bible open, something to write on and something to write with, and you're in good shape this morning. Um, I don't know about you guys, my family started in earnest a new game last night, an annual game of how long can we go without turning on the heat. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to lie, I've been feeling weak lately, very weak. We'll see what happens there. So, all right, Bible's open, we're good to go. Uh, Earlier this year, a few months ago, I, I read an article about a museum in France And it's dedicated to the artwork of a painter named Etienne Terrace. Now, you have to forgive me. I never took French. My pronunciation is not even close. So just you'll just have to roll with me on it. Etienne Terrace. And Terrace died in 1922. And the museum in his tiny hometown is a source of tremendous local pride. Here's this artist who was a contemporary and a friend of Matisse. He's from this tiny little village, and here's this museum in his honor. Well, just this year, the museum discovered that more than half of its collection of terrace paintings are fakes. In fact, 82 out of its 140 paintings, more than half, uh, were counterfeit paintings. And as you can imagine, museum officials and the town folk were devastated, outraged, and embarrassed by all of this because nobody likes a counterfeit. When you think you have the real deal and it's on display, nobody likes a counterfeit. Have you ever considered what a counterfeit church might look like or a counterfeit religion? It might be more difficult to identify than you might think. You see, a counterfeit church is indeed a thing, but they often have a tide of popular opinion that keeps them afloat. Uh, People come to love the counterfeit and defend the counterfeit as if it were the real thing. But the diagnosis, the ultimate diagnosis of a church's health, counterfeit or real, is not up to those on the inside. Ultimately, it's up to the God whom they claim to represent. There's such a thing as a counterfeit church. Have you ever considered maybe even if you yourself, if you practice a counterfeit religion. There's such a thing as that as well. The diagnosis is sadly far more widespread than you might think. You see, a a counterfeit painting is still a painting, right? Someone, a, a gifted artist, has to stand there at a canvas with color and apply it to the canvas and make it all look right. Even a counterfeit requires skill and time and tools. And people who practice counterfeit religion, likewise, have invested a lot of time and thought into it. They may have religious rituals they can point to, ceremonies that have been important in their lives, but anyone who practices religious ritual without faith in Christ is settling for a counterfeit. And God intended better for you. He didn't intend for you to live your life in pursuit of fool's gold. Rather, God gives to us, offers to us, the eternal, glorious treasure of His salvation. 
And believe me, friend, you, you don't want to stand before God one day and be found to be a counterfeit. There's a better way. There's a way of true life, and that's the way that Jesus teaches us today. In our study of Mark, we have entered into Holy Week. Now, we're six months away from Easter proper, but we're on Monday of Holy Week here in Mark chapter 11. And on this day, Jesus, Jesus speaks judgment and he acts judgment on counterfeit religion and counterfeit church. So my goal today is to expose the emptiness of counterfeit religion and to point your heart, your affections towards true faith in Jesus Christ. Here's how I want to accomplish this. I'm going to describe Jesus' negative reactions to false religious practice, but also the alternative that he gives to us. So our passage starts out decidedly negative. We can't get around that, can't soften it, don't want to soften it. But our target this morning is hope. It's life, it's joy in Jesus Christ. If we study this right, if we respond to it right, then we're going to leave here today walking the path of God's blessing. Two paths before us today, a path of curse, a path of blessing. Jesus calls us down the path of blessing. So in our study of Mark, Jesus has already entered into Jerusalem last week, was Palm Sunday around here, and Jesus uh, walks into or goes into the city on a donkey, fulfilling a messianic prophecy. The people go wild, and now we wake up in Mark chapter 11, verse 12, the next day as the scene unfolds. Follow along with me in your Bible as I read, starting in Mark chapter 11, verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, that's Jesus and his disciples, as they're leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. But when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven 
may forgive you your sins. So our passage can be neatly divided into three different sections. If that might help you see what we've read better, three different sections. First is the fig tree, second is the temple, third is this teaching by Jesus. If you're into alliteration, you've got a tree, you've got a temple, you've got a teaching. Those are the ways we're going to approach this passage today. What I want to share with you from here are some lessons Jesus teaches us about counterfeit religion and really his reaction to these things. How does Jesus respond? What do we learn about Jesus in this passage? First of all, Jesus curses faithless religion. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Jesus curses faithless religion in verses 12 through 14. So again, here we are the day after the triumphal entry. Jesus and the disciples have left Bethany. Bethany is a little community outside of Jerusalem, just maybe a couple of miles away. And you'll remember that Jesus has very, very close friends that live in Bethany, a sibling group, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. So Jesus and the disciples are coming from Bethany and on their way into the city. Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree. He approaches the fig tree. It has leaves on it, but no figs. It has no fruit. The reason it has no fruit is because it's not fig season. As a result, Jesus curses the tree. Now, the tree doesn't wither immediately. We revisit the tree the next morning, and that's when Peter makes his his comment that the tree is withered from the roots up. It's dead to its core as a result of this curse. And interestingly enough, this curse has become one of the most controversial miracles Jesus has done in the entire New Testament. It's indeed a miracle. It's a miracle of destruction. Those types of miracles aren't uncommon in the Old Testament. This is the only one in the New Testament. Or excuse me, the only one in the Gospels. I apologize. It's the only uh, miracle of destruction in the Gospels. Um, But still, it's a miracle nonetheless. And the reason it's become so controversial is because Bible critics, and critics of Jesus in particular, have found this behavior really distasteful in Jesus. They would call him petulant, childish, irrational. A modern-day critic might call Jesus hangry, right? We've all been there. You're mean to everyone because you're hungry. So all these different critical names have been laid on Jesus. And essentially, critics have said, this doesn't seem like behavior becoming of the God-man. Really, it seems rather childish. But we know that Jesus is not acting like a spoiled brat who doesn't get his way. He's not pouting at the tree. He doesn't pitch a fit. He doesn't throw a tantrum. But rather what's happening in this scene is Jesus is intentionally acting out a parable. It's an object lesson that symbolizes the unfruitfulness of Israel and the nation's coming judgment. In this fruitless tree is a picture of of Israel's unfaithfulness and God's coming judgment. So what is the fruit that's missing from Israel? Why why is this fruitlessness so bad? If we can identify that fruit, it would be helpful. Here's where we have to use caution. Because you and I, New Testament believers, when we think of fruit, we immediately go to fruit of the Spirit. And so we're going to think about those characteristics or those actions that flow from a life that follows Jesus Christ. 
And it's true, every believer has to bear fruit, this fruit of the Spirit. But the fruitlessness on this particular day is not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's not why Jesus is upset. The fruitlessness present in Israel on this day is a failure of faith in the Messiah. They have rejected the one sent by God. The Messiah has arrived. Here he is in Jerusalem. And for a very long time, long before this, the religious leaders have been scheming how to kill him, how to get rid of him. They want nothing to do with the one sent by God, the one who is God. That is the fruitlessness in Israel. The Messiah has come, and he finds a temple, and he finds that temple full of ceremony, and it's full of religious duty, but it is absent of faith. That's a problem. Ceremony or ritual without faith in Christ only condemns the worshiper. Faith in Christ is everything. And the judgment of Jesus is the same today on faithless people as it was on this day in this enacted parable with the tree. The judgment of Jesus can fall on churches. It's easy for churches on the whole to be religious, to have ceremony, to observe ordinances, to care about order and decorum, to be socially engaged and involved. It's easy for a church to do those things. But listen, the church that does not preach the gospel, believe the gospel, grow in the gospel, and proclaim the gospel will meet the curse of God's judgment. God does not need our gathering. He's not lacking something until we all show up at the same hour and face the same way. He doesn't want our ceremony. He doesn't want our ritual. He wants our hearts. Faith is what's required of those in the church. That judgment can fall on a church. That judgment can fall on individual people as well. Look, so many people have this kind of story when they talk about their religious backgrounds or experiences So many people will describe rituals and ceremonies they've been a part of, some actions they do today, therefore God should be okay with me. For example, if you come from a Protestant background, your story might be something like this. When I was a kid, we were in church a lot. I went to vacation Bible school every summer, did a little camp stuff, and now you know, my family still comes to church on Easter and Christmas and random Sundays in October, and that's the story. If you're Catholic, the story might go like this. Hey, I, was, I was baptized as an infant. I went to CCD, First Communion, married in the church, and we're at church now on Easter and Christmas, random Sundays in October. Both of those stories lack one central key element. Do you know what it is? It's faith in Jesus Christ. They can point to ritual and point to ceremony and point to things they did, but they they have no claim of faith in Jesus Christ. Ritual is not the same as faith. Trust, affection, love, belief, that's the stuff of faith. The problem is so many of us have this idea 
that the ritual is a conduit of faith. The ceremony is, a, is an expression of faith. Faith is where everything starts. Apart from it, we are a fruitless fig tree, condemned in judgment. But we don't have to stay that way today. Judgment has not been rendered final yet. Here's good news for us that this fig tree did not have on that day. In the telling of this story, you find the grace of God that calls you to love him. The grace of God that reaches out to people like me, like you, who have rejected him by our sin, who have been glad to rebel against him, and God reaches out to us in grace with this warning and says, now's the time. There will be a time when there is no more time, when the chance is gone, but now there's grace. Now there's hope. Now there's opportunity if you would say yes to Jesus Christ by faith. He doesn't want your ritual. He wants your faith. And he's trustworthy. Why is he trustworthy? Because the one we've sinned against is the one who came to us in the flesh and laid down his life at the cross and three days later rose again. He did all of that to win your salvation. So you don't do anything. You trust the one who has done everything. That's good news. That's a fruitful life. That's a tree with leaf and fruit, not just with leaf and judgment waiting from the roots up. From the very beginning of this story, this little episode with the tree, it speaks a, a hard truth and a hopeful grace to us. Jesus curses faithless religion. So now's the time to turn from that empty religion and turn to true faith in Jesus Christ. The story continues on from the fig tree. Jesus continues on his journey and we continue to learn lessons about how Jesus responds to empty religion, to counterfeit religion. The second lesson we learn is this, is that Jesus destroys wicked worship. Jesus destroys wicked worship. Look, I know it's heavy Hang with me. We, we've got to take what the text gives us, and there's hope coming, but right now we've got to sit in the hardness of these truths. Jesus destroys wicked worship. So from the tree, he moves into Jerusalem, into the temple area, and it, if you're not familiar with what Herod's temple looked like, you'd do well to go Google that this afternoon and just familiarize yourself a bit with the lay of the land. The temple complex is not just like some little church. It's a massive, massive uh, compound. North to south, maybe over 500 yards long. East to west, over 300 yards wide. Uh, it's built on this massive raised hill. So it's, it's a, the city is already on a hill. The, the temple is above that, raised above everything else. And the the temple was built with these sort of concentric circles of access. So the outermost circle is what's called the court of the Gentiles. Anyone could walk through there and, and go through there. It's, it's the largest space. But beyond that, there were signs warning Gentiles, don't go beyond this court or you're going to be killed. So from the court of Gentiles, the next circle in was the court of women. 
So Jewish men and women could go into that area. But beyond that, Jewish women could not go deeper into the circle, so to speak. The next circle in was for Jewish men. The next circle beyond that was for priests. And these concentric circles went all the way to a bullseye, so to speak, the Holy of Holies, that holiest place where the high priest only went in once a year uh, to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. So on the day when Jesus comes into the temple and overturns these tables and creates this scene, it seems that he did this in the court of Gentiles, this very large open area. And on the southern end of the temple complex is this large uh, colonnade where merchants set up to do business. And it's important that we understand precisely what the offense is that really gets Jesus going here. You see, the, the presence of money changers and people selling animals for sacrifices was not an awful thing. It, it was actually a needed service that was provided by these vendors. Uh, pilgrims coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this holiday were bringing different types of currency with them. They needed a unified temple currency to pay their temple tax and to make transactions. That was a common thing. That wasn't a bad thing at all. And they also needed to sacrifice animals. And so the temple would provide temple-approved animals that were deemed clean and deemed appropriate for these sacrifices. That was a good service. That's, that's not a bad thing. Jesus isn't upset about the, uh, this marketplace that's taking place in the, the temple square. But rather, here's where Jesus gets upset. The historians tell us that the exchange rate on the currency was criminal. Here are pilgrims, worshipers coming in and they are being fleeced by the leaders of God's people. And then the price to buy the animals for sacrifice was jacked up significantly. And again, innocent worshipers are being fleeced by God's people. So Jesus is not angry about commerce in the temple. He's angry about these sinful actions that are happening. So Jesus' actions and words help us understand why he's angry. Why is Jesus angry? First of all, in verse 15, he's furious at injustice against the poor. Verse 15 tells us he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. So again, money changers are necessary, but the exchange rate was criminal. Those selling animals were necessary. The prices were criminal. And what type of person buys a dove as their sacrifice? A poor person. A person who can't afford a larger animal. Coincidentally, when Mary and Joseph bring the infant Jesus to be dedicated at the temple, you know what kind of animals they brought with them to sacrifice? Doves, birds. So poor people are being targeted by the religious organization and being fleeced for the profit of the temple. And what have we learned about Jesus and how he feels about injustice against the poor, the low, the broken, children, the voiceless? How does he respond? Over and over again, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus expresses righteous, holy anger. When those who are low and broken and voiceless in society are taken advantage of, especially by those who claim a place in the covenant community. He won't have it. 
His anger is entirely within his character as we've been studying the gospel of Mark. He's furious at injustice against the poor. You know what else he's mad at? He's mad because these temple leaders, they've turned their backs on the nations. Jesus, in teaching his disciples and whoever else is around him in this moment, I would imagine with a lot of anger and passion, he he makes this comment. Verse 17, Jesus said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. Jesus has taken two quotes, one from Isaiah, one from Jeremiah, put them together in this one statement. And the quote from Isaiah is the first line. Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? So, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 56. You might want to write it down. Isaiah 56, verse 7 is where this line comes from. And it'd be great to go back and read through Isaiah 56 so you can get a grasp on the context around what Jesus is saying here. Isaiah gives a prophetic vision of what the end times will be like. And what he describes is is a time and a place where all nations are gathered to the temple. All the nations are gathered to God together at the temple. And so according to Isaiah's vision, eunuchs would keep God's covenant and foreigners would join themselves to God and outcasts would be gathered with God's people. But that's not what Jesus finds when he lands at the temple that day. Instead of finding a gathering place for the nations, Jesus finds the temple pulsing with buying and selling The court of Gentiles is a place designed all along for foreigners to congregate, for the nations to seek the Lord. It's not just, hey, you can stand here. It's you can worship here. You can approach Yahweh from this place. But instead, it's overrun with thieves trying to profit in the name of God. The great sadness of this scene is is not that there's buying and selling in the temple place, but that All of this left no room for Gentiles and outcasts to come to God. Jesus is furious because the temple leaders have turned their backs on the nations for a sick little prophet. Another reason Jesus is furious is because the temple leaders believe that God protects them in their sin. So remember I said Jesus line here. He he combines two quotes, one from Isaiah, one from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11 is where we find the phrase about the den of robbers. I I want you to listen as Jeremiah describes God's judgment on the empty religion of his people. Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 9, God says this, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah 7 does not describe theft happening in the temple so much. Rather, it describes grotesque sin being committed by God's people outside the temple. Then they come into the temple for what they think is their own safety. 
safe and secure from all alarms. We're going to live grotesque in sin, and then we're going to come together and sing the song and offer the sacrifice and do the worship, have the ceremony and the ritual, and we're safe in here. And God says, I've been watching. You think this is a den of robbers? You know what robbers do in their dens? They don't rob, they rest. So to call the temple a den of robbers, he's saying, you you think you can come in here with your wicked hearts and just find your safety and your comfort and your ease? But I've been watching. It's not going to be that way. So this forces us to ask really pointed questions about our own faith practice and about our own gathering. How well does our gathering, our worship, anticipate the prophet's vision of a new creation where the foreigners come to Jesus Christ and outcasts are brought to salvation and losers are lifted high in the name of Jesus Christ. We must fight to maintain faithfulness to this vision of God's church. That we would work intentionally to be a church of open arms, rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but a church that fights for diversity in all ways. A church that is sensitive to issues related to race and economics. A church that reflects heaven in the way we welcome people and celebrate Jesus Christ together. Like a church that sings songs while being cold to people, exclusive, racist, or showing favoritism, that church is in the bullseye of God's judgment. But the church that sings songs with a choir of misfits and ragamuffins and outcasts and losers, all in the name of Jesus Christ, that is the stuff of heaven. So with this this temple scene, we're learning important lessons from Jesus about how he approaches counterfeit religion. In response to his table flipping and bench flipping, right, the, the religious leaders are irate, the people are amazed. But the lessons don't stop there. These are hard lessons, but our story finishes with hope. The last lesson we learn in this story is that Jesus blesses faithfulness. He blesses faithfulness in verses 20 through 25. So the next morning, they pass by the same tree, and Peter points out, that tree is dead from the roots up. It doesn't just have brown leaves. It's, it's dead all the way to the center of it. And just as things go for this fruitless fig tree, so goes the temple. Listen, that temple is going to be destroyed. A mistake we often make in trying to make sense of this story is we'll call it the cleansing of the temple as if Jesus washes away the dirt so then the temple can begin to operate in its proper way. The time of washing is done. It's time for destruction. This is not about the temple's um, consummation. This is about the temple's consumption. It's, it, Jesus is done with it. It's going to be destroyed. And there's going to be a new temple. That temple is Jesus Christ himself. And he has a new people, those who have faith in him. And so Jesus, in the wake of this, 
Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples to think about the temple being cursed, the temple being destroyed, not being present anymore. They just, they can't fathom that kind of life. The temple is the center point of their faith and worship and practice. They, they can't imagine life without it. And so it's jarring to imagine that this dead fig tree is speaking of the coming judgment on this temple, this wicked, ceremony-filled, faithless temple. But Jesus speaks hope to His disciples. Look what He says in verse 22. Have faith in God. Temple's going to be imploded. Every rock torn down. Guess what? Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. So here's what you and I have, have done with this verse. Well, maybe not so much you and I, but certainly televangelists have ripped this verse out of the Bible and they have just mutilated it so that they can buy corporate jets and all kinds of stupid stuff. Uh, so apart from what the prosperity gospel has done to really mutilate this verse, we've got to dig into it to make sure we understand what Jesus is saying here. Is he really saying that faith has a creative force, and if you believe enough, then you're moving landmarks into the ocean? That's not what he's saying. This is not about faith as a creative force in and of itself. Faith always has direction. Or else it's not faith. It always has direction. And the potency of faith is determined by the direction, the focus of that faith. So what, what kind of faith is so effective that it deserves this hyperbole that you could throw a mountain into the sea? Faith in God. That's the kind of faith that matters. Not just faith as some sort of general wishfulness, hopefulness, happiness, positive outlook. It's trust in God explicitly. When the temple is evaporated, when old anchors are done away with, what anchor remains? It's faith in God. And how effective is that anchor? It's so effective, so powerful, that believing in God, you could toss a mountain into the sea. It's hyperbole on Jesus' part, but he's making the point of the power and effectiveness of faith in God. But I think Jesus does more for us than just use this hyperbole. I think he puts a little flesh around the figure of speech. And what he says next, I think, is descriptive of the type of faith that throws mountains into oceans. What does he say next? Look at verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Again, We've got to separate our thinking away from prosperity gospel, demonic teaching, uh, that, all of that garbage. This is not saying that if you, if you ask really sincerely and you really, really believe that God's going to give you the car or get rid of those last 10 pounds or you're going to win the football game, that's what God's going to do for you. That's not what this is about at all. God does not honor prayer that doesn't line up with His will, period. doesn't matter how much you really want Him to do it. He is such a good God that He will say no to our godless requests. And He will say yes to every request that lines up with His will. 
So how effective is faith in God? It's this effective, this powerful. It restores a right relationship between us and God so that I can pray and he will hear and he will answer. Faith fixes the divide. Faith in God fixes the divide between me and God. That's mountain-moving faith. Better than moving a mountain is raising a dead person to life through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what this does. You know how powerful faith in Christ is? Not just strong enough to restore that relationship with God. Look what he says next in verse 25. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Don't be so quick to write that off as dumb and not applying to you. Where the Bible makes us squirm is where we need to settle in and pay attention. But if we're speaking in generalities, what is Jesus describing in verse 25? He's describing the power of faith in Christ to heal brokenness in our relationships. You know what the greatest commandment is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know what the second is? Similar. Love your neighbor as yourself. How effective is faith? He's shown us here. It restores our relationship with God. And it gives us the ability to restore broken relationships with each other. The curse of the Garden of Eden is reversed by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the power of faith. So Jesus has he's come in hot today as he's described for us the emptiness of counterfeit religion. Faithlessness and then hatred of people. It doesn't matter how you package that, what kind of sanctuary you put that in, that has no place in the kingdom of God. These are the things that invite Christ's anger and judgment. But there's a way forward, a way of blessing for those who trust God. For believers, this is a very deep challenge. We mustn't assume that we're exempt from the lessons of this passage just because we're believers. Listen, it's evaluation time for us today. What kind of worship is God receiving from my life? Not not in terms of the song I'm singing or the instruments I'm using or how frequently I'm singing it with others. What kind of worship does my life evoke to God? Am I living a life that is bringing heaven with me? As I speak and live the gospel among outcasts and losers and broken and misfits and the voiceless and the poor and all those who are hurt and pushed out by society, am I living my faith to point people to Christ in this way? Or do I just show up and sing prescribed songs on Sundays and otherwise live like a scoundrel? Jesus brings conviction deep and pointed this morning to us. And what if you're not a follower of Jesus? Well, look, Jesus is inviting you into a new story. The old story you had was a little bit of religious ceremony with zero faith involved at all. He's giving you a new story to tell today. The story of a saved person, the story of the person God delights in goes something like this. I was a sinner, and I was dead in my sin. My sin was rotten, and all my attempts at being good were rotten. I did this religious thing and that religious thing, but the whole time I wasn't believing in Jesus. I was superstitious. I thought if I did these things, God would be good to me. But those things didn't sway God. They didn't make him love me more. What I learned is that God has loved me 
the whole time. And the proof of his love is this. He came in the person of Jesus. He died in my place for my sin. He rose from the dead. And if I trust in him, put all my life in him, then I walk in the way of blessing. That's the stuff that only God can do. And that's the stuff he will do for you this day if you will turn your life, your affections, your trust to Jesus Christ. There's two paths before us today in this passage, the way of the curse and the way of life. Brothers and sisters, have faith in God. Let's pray together. Oh God, this passage calls us first to confession and repentance because we can't help but find ourselves among those who think little of people and much of profit, those who think much of ceremony and little of faith, those who have religious deeds without affection for you. This is our mirror today. God, forgive us. Thank you for the grace of conviction over sin. In my life, in our life as a church, God, I, w- I want to believe. I, w- I want to know that were you to visit here, you-, you wouldn't walk into this sanctuary and have to overturn things, but Lord, you would find your children trusting you completely and living to glorify your name among those who have no hope apart from Jesus Christ. I would hope that if you were to walk into my house, God, you wouldn't have to turn over my things, but you would find in me the kind of husband and the kind of dad, the kind of man whose life evokes a worship that brings honor and glory to you. Holy Spirit, this morning, lead us into truth as a result of the word we've studied. And I ask that you would bring new life Awaken faith in those this morning who have relied on religious ceremony but have never anchored their lives in faith in Christ. We love you and we trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.